0: It was late in the evening. The sky was that pinkish orangish color it gets um, when the sun is fixing to go down, just a hint of clouds off in the distance. The disciples' heads were still full of the stuff that Jesus had been saying, weird, cryptic stuff, like, um, For to those who have, more will be given, and from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. Lots of stories about seeds being scattered and sown, and some being eaten by birds, and some growing and producing a harvest. And then there are those mustard seeds that grow wildly like weeds and give the birds some place to hang around. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. The crowds got just the parables, the disciples got the parables plus the explanations. And so their heads were full to bursting. And then evening came, and Jesus called a halt to the teaching. Let us go over to the other side. Now this was something the disciples could get, well, their heads around, or their backs into. Close the books, put the pencils down, stand up and head on out across the lake or the Sea of Galilee. Leave the crowds behind. Leave the hard studying behind. Clear the tables. Clear the decks. Mop the floors. Turn out the lights and go. They climbed into the boat. And the rest of the story is familiar to us. A storm brewed up over the lake, the wind blew, the waves grew wild and began to swamp the boat. Some of the disciples were professional sailors and fishers, and this storm was making them afraid, which tells us what kind of storm it was. The wind blew and the waves grew even more wild, and the boat was getting even more swamped, an all-hands-on-deck kind of moment. But Jesus was taking it easy in the back of the boat. He was asleep in the stern, asleep on a cushion, and the wind was blowing and the waves were crashing, and the boat was getting more swamped, and the disciples were growing more anxious, and so they woke Jesus up. Oi, teacher, a little help, please. Can't you see we're dying here? Do you not care that we are perishing? Jesus woke up. He rebuked the wind. He talked to the sea. Knock it off. Be quiet. Settle down already. Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and the water became as still as a dead thing, calm, peaceful. And then Jesus turned to his disciples and he spoke to them. Why are you afraid? Have you still no faith? And they looked at each other, their mouths hanging open, slack-jawed, gobsmacked, in awe. And they said to each other, did you see that? The the wind, the, the, the sea, did you see that? Who is this anyway? I'm afraid uh, my little eye thing is continuing again. Um, my latest uh, treatment provider said that perhaps it is indeed a metaphor. And um, reference Jackson Brown, if you will. Okay. I'd like to test something with you this morning. It's something I've been feeling and thinking about for quite a long time. Something that I've even written about for the Mennonite, which coincidentally happened to appear in this week's issue. I knew nothing about that um, before preparing this sermon. But it seems to me that we Mennonites are becoming an anxious bunch. We've seen some handwriting on the wall prophesying our imminent demise. We've learned the facts and Jay recited some of them for us this morning. We are graying, we are thinning, we are less connected to the things in communities which used to bind us, less committed to our various agencies and in every measurable way following the trend set by the mainline churches. Declining is a word I hear Mennonites use more frequently. Our traditional congregations we are told are losing steam and losing relevance at a rapid rate And so we must abandon them or reach past them and start all over again. The only solution to our dilemma is to shake off the dust of accumulated experience and ways of being church and head off into the brave new world of post-denominational, post-Christendom, post, well, whatever it is that holds us back them. If and only if we do these things will we have some hope for survival. But if we fail to jump ship, so to speak, we will go under, never to be seen or heard from again. I am, of course, engaging in a wee bit of overstatement, but I think it's only a wee bit. There is an anxiety among us, within us, around us, that makes me wonder. Don't get me wrong, I do not deny the facts, the data, the results of the latest surveys. I don't doubt that we are everything that Conrad Kanegi says we are, and that we are, by any objective measure, nothing like what we used to be. The water is high, the wind is picking up, and the boat seems to just keep getting smaller. By statistical, or sociological, or mathematical standards, we look for all the world like a church at risk, fixing to go under, if not now, then someday, and perhaps someday soon. So I don't dispute the findings, the facts, the data. But I really do wonder about the response to those things. I wonder about our anxiety. Some of you may remember some years back when we had Tom and Christine sign with us for a weekend. And you may remember Tom's sign telling us from this very pulpit that our congregation was pretty well doomed. He looked around the room, he counted the gray heads, the wrinkled faces, the age spots on our hands, and said that we'd be dead in a generation if we didn't do something and pretty soon to prevent that. And I remember thinking, huh, (laughs) now that's good news, isn't it? I am so glad we invited you here this weekend. I mean, I'll mean, admit it irritated me. It irritated me to have my people counted out that way. And yet this was Tom Sein, after all, the mustard seed conspiracy guy. Famous and sought-after speaker and teacher and author of a pile of books still in print. Who was I to feel irritation at his prophetic diagnosis? Maybe he was right. Maybe we needed to start panicking and start panicking now and get busy fending off our demise. Maybe we needed to hurry up and bail before the ecclesial hospice team showed up to keep us comfortable while we drifted off into eternity. So faced with such conflicting responses, irritation at what seemed a rather cavalier assessment of our congregation's life expectancy and anxiety caused by the prophetic speech of a top-level Christian writer and prognosticator, I did what any thinking person would do. I did my best to forget it. And I must say it was pretty successful until recently um, when it seemed to me that the anxious drumbeats started pounding away in our conference and in our denomination. And to be honest those drumbeats are echoing the rhythms coming from other parts of the broader Christian church in North America. Decline is the word of the day in the North American church with nobody feeling confident about the future of our institutions and the practices that we've grown up with and come to cherish. Even our fundamentalist sisters and brothers who are unaccustomed to failing are now fretting over the demise of their mega congregations with people drifting away in trickles which threaten to become major floods if somebody doesn't hurry up and plug the leaks. We've done the calculations. We've surveyed the the people and the landscape. We've sought the opinions of the experts. We've done our demographic homework and everything points in the same direction. We are aging. We are shrinking. We are on a downward trajectory. The evidence is in. The diagnosis is clear. And as I said, I don't dispute any of that. I don't doubt the experts. I don't question the figures. I don't want to demand a recount. But what I wonder about is the treatment and the prognosis. I I wonder about our growing anxiety. It seems to me that the source of our anxiety is the belief that whatever is going wrong in the church is ours to fix. The church is ours to repair. The church is ours to revive or to resuscitate. We have to administer the CPR. We have to develop the treatment plan and see to it that appropriate interventions occur. We have to be diligent in doing what is therapeutically necessary. We have to administer the proper dosages and check the various pressures and counts and administer the right tests and readings. We need to eliminate dead tissue. And so we devise plans. We devise plans to plant a whole bunch of new churches in order to replace the dead and dying ones, the older traditional models whose lifespan is ending whether its members realize it or not. We have to engage in some creative marketing and and fiddle with our practices to make them more accessible to folks with no religious affiliation or background. We have to change our music or our preaching or the art on our walls or become more liturgical or become less liturgical or become more ritualistic or become less ritualistic. We have to somehow find the proper formula, the right serum, the perfect antidote to what ails us. And if we do these things, we will not only survive, we may well thrive, but if we don't do these things, well then call the funeral director and put down the deposit because the end is coming. Now, on the face of it, there is nothing at all wrong with any of these attempts to generate church growth. There's certainly nothing wrong with seeking to make our congregations more open, more welcoming, more accessible, more like the lights on the hill that we've always been called to be. We must be faithful to the Great Commission. We must tell the truth about Jesus Christ to everybody we meet. We must reach out and welcome and invite and encourage and offer support and love and mercy and healing to everybody we meet. We need to listen to one another and make adjustments in our practices so that we can not only make everybody feel at home in our worship, but also to stretch us and to keep us nimble and graceful as we age. We may well be called to plan a new congregation or in some other way to venture beyond the comfort of these four walls and engage in an entirely different kind of mission and ministry. My concern, my point, is not to question the various strategies and ideas and brainstorms that are being generated by our conference or our denomination or the various Christian think tanks or our own congregation. While I certainly have my opinions about those things and my preferences, I don't doubt the usefulness of engaging in those kinds of thinking and discerning and adventuring. They can be sources of light and heat and energy, serve to shake us out of our complacency or motivate us to get back to work or set a bit of a spark under our seats which gets us excited again about our faith. Now, my concern is with the anxiety that I feel or that I sense behind so much of the production of new ideas. The sense I get that we believe that the boat is sinking and that it's up to us to save the day. That the salvation of the church hinges on our strength, our muscles, our brains, our wisdom, our knowledge, our expertise, our power. And that, dear sisters and brothers, is simply not so. You see, here's the thing, Jesus is in the boat with us and he's not all wound up, worried, fretful, frozen in place by the size of the emergency. Jesus is taking a nap in the boat while we run around frantically bailing. Jesus is resting on a cushion in the back of the boat, the waves are rising. The wind is blowing, the water's lapping around our ankles, and Jesus naps away. The very picture of calm, the very picture of faith. And then we remember that, and, well, like the disciples, our panic gets the best of us. We take his calm, relaxed posture, his restfulness, as a sign that he's either not paying attention or doesn't care about us at all. Don't you see that we are perishing? Come on, Jesus, read the book. Study the survey results. Catch up with the times. Things are going south in a hurry. Don't you see that we are perishing? Wake up and smell the coffee. Or better yet, wake up and grab a bucket. Look at the sky. Hear the wind. Smell our fear and get to work. Don't you see that we are perishing? And Jesus yawns and sits up, scratches his head a little bit, gets to his feet and speaks a word of peace. And all the facts, all the evidence, all the frightening things looming over that boat, all the projected outcomes and prophetic announcements about our doom are put to rest. Jesus speaks and all is calm. The storm is gone, vanished, like it was never there. And we realize that Jesus' relaxed posture, his calm, said nothing at all about his love and concern for us and our well-being. No, but it did mean, it did mean that there was much more going on than met the eye. It's not as though the storm was not real. It wasn't a figment of the disciples' imagination. It's not as though the statistical evidence is faulty or nonsensical or meaningless. It's just that it's not the whole story. It's not the whole picture. It's not the whole truth. There is something, someone else, going on here. Jesus is in the boat with us. And that changes everything. Which is why his next words are so relevant to our circumstances. Why are you afraid? Have you still no faith? We've done a fair bit of talking at East Chestnut Street about our relationship to the empire. And one of the things we noted was that the Empire claims to be our protector, our guardian, the source of comfort and prosperity and hope for a bright tomorrow. And it reveals its power to do those things through the strength of its armies, and the strength of its economy, and the wisdom of its leaders, and the expertise of its counselors. There are bad things all around us, but fear not. Give us your loyalty, place your trust in us, Offer us your money and your children, and we will protect and keep you. So the empire claims. And we rightly resist that claim as being idolatrous. We resist that claim and proclaim instead that only God can save and that our allegiance is to Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, and to no one and nothing else. But doesn't our anxiety about the future of the church, about our own future, have about it just a hint of that same idolatry, that same misplaced trust, if this time trust in our own strength or our own ability to be faithful or our own ability to save what seems to us to be at risk of perishing. Isn't there just a little bit of idolatry in our acting as if the saving of the church, the rescue of God's people, the protecting of God's plan of redemption is up to us? why are we afraid have we still no faith well sisters and brothers we do have work to do and part of that work is discerning the times and the spirits keeping our eyes and hearts open to what is happening all around us and part of that discernment is looking closely at our congregational health and our viability as a conference and our prospects as a denomination and the overall well-being of the body of christ that discernment is part of our calling as a people. We do not do ourselves any favors. Indeed, we would not be faithful if we ignored the evidence and dismissed the truth, dismiss the fruits of our discernment as being nothing to be concerned about or something to be ignored. This is no time for whistling in the dark. But neither is it time to be afraid of the dark or the waves or the wind. Take them seriously, yes. Do our part in reducing their effects, you betcha. Continue the work to which we've been called by Christ himself to be a people of reconciliation and hope, a city on a hill, salt and light in the world, a community faithful and true and learning to become more and more like Jesus. Absolutely. We have work to do and plenty of it, work which requires us to take stock and to know the facts and read the road signs for the journey. But we must not be afraid because Jesus is in the boat with us. We must have faith, and not in ourselves and our abilities to find a way through to the other side of whatever it is that we're facing. We must have faith in Jesus. We must place our trust in Jesus. We must act as if we really do believe that he is the Lord of the church, that the church belongs to Christ, and that the Spirit of Christ is still feeding and watering and nurturing and leading us, and that neither Christ nor the Spirit is going to abandon us not when things are going swell and the sailing is smooth, and not when the storm is threatening to toss us all into the sea. It is the will of God that the church will continue to be an instrument of healing and hope, a messenger of salvation and good news, Christ's hands and feet in the world. And the will of God, the will of God will not be thwarted. And so we work. We are Mennonites after all. We work, but we don't work from anxiety. We work from grace. We work from joy. We work in trust. We work in faith. We work knowing that the saving of the world is Christ's to bring about. The saving of the church is Christ's to bring about. We are Christ's instruments, to be sure. But when all is said and done, the future of the church and its mission belongs to Christ let us lay our burdens down sisters and brothers because they were never ours to carry alone Jesus is in the boat with us hallelujah why are we afraid have we still no faith Jesus is in the boat with us we will get to the other side and beyond we will get all the way home Let us not be afraid. Let us learn to have faith. May God make it so. Amen.